Welcome to The Big Deal, where we unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and much more. Subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast player and don't forget to sign up to www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montesi, joined again by AFL legend Warren Treadray. Now, Treaders, you're coming to us live from your little seaside getaway. Yeah, away for a couple of days, but uh, just out of town. We'll be back in town for the showdown week, and it's probably a big talking point in Adelaide as we speak because um, Adelaide fell just short against Melbourne, lost a couple of key players. Nick Murray, unfortunately, done a knee reconstruction. Um, Isaac Rankin also out with a hamstring injury. Well, over at Port Adelaide, uh, they lost um, a last quarter demolition, six goals to three against the top 10 Collingwood. They looked like they were going to pinch that one. Uh, and Rioli finds himself facing the match review panel after two weeks, and the club is looking to appeal that. So hopefully get that down to one week, but it's fair to say he probably won't be playing in the showdown. So big showdown week in Adelaide. Yeah, it's always a big one, Traders. And, you know, let's kick off the, the wrap and just um, unpack it a little bit more. I mean, there's always the, the hype and banter, uh, during the week, what's it actually like behind the scenes, though, for players and just the the running of the club? Is it business as usual? Well, it's business as usual, but with some more anxiety, if that makes any sense, because it's your hometown rival. It's not like you're playing a Collingwood or a Richmond or a West Coast and you go, oh, you know, it, it, there's the focus on the match and preparation. There's all the added emotion outside of it. Um, and for me, you know, doing food shopping, simple things like doing food shopping or getting a coffee during a showdown week, always turns into good luck this week. Hey, how are you going to go? How are we going to go? Or I hope you get flogged. So it can't escape it. And that's the one bit, particularly if you played on a Sunday afternoon showdown, which they used to do a fair bit um, in the early days, is that you finish training on Friday. You might have to have a kick and catch. You go to the local footy, a sample game, which maybe the Port Maggie's feels my team on the Saturday, then have a team meeting. Then come Sunday, you feel like you're absolutely exhausted before it's happened. And all these fans have just had this build-up and crescendo of, of emotion. Whereas the fans, you're trying to play uh, football as a football. You're trying to be distracted from it, not even think about it. But it's almost impossible because every time you, you, you put in put on an FM radio station to listen to some music and then giving away showdowns. Uh, you flick the news on to see, oh, there's any news. Everything's about showdown and then showdown colour stills. So... Um, I don't know how many times I want to film people sitting in, a, uh, in the old days at Westlake's Footy Park barbecue and, you know, with their beer up, eating their snacks, I'm like, come on, Paul, come on, Christ. So for a player, I found the best bit was to try and get away from it. And the best showdown week I had was after a win because after a loss, you'd put your head down for about three or four days and keep and, and just try and focus on moving on. So it's, it's a really interesting time. It's a dynamic that's obviously exclusive to... Um, yeah, effectively the two team towns and particularly AFL based towns like West Coast and Frio, but uh, Port Adelaide and Adelaide. And I still think there's only one game the difference. It's, it's yeah, 30 something versus 30 other something. It's it's always been a really close rivalry and both teams hate each other. Fans don't like each other. And really it can dictate some people's week as to how their result goes on showdown. I mean, bigger picture though, like it kind of taps into that issue of rivalries in sport. Like, how important are rivalries uh, 
beyond just, you know, the four points in the AFL or beyond the win, like, like how important is it to, to clubs? Oh, I think it's huge. I think it's, and it's, I like, you, you love sport, but if there was no emotion attached to it, what would it be? Just be a game played in a park, wouldn't it? If you're talking about Aussie rules. So there's a, and it, I always say it's a tribal attachment. There's something in the team's colours or performance or history that, you know, makes a young person join their club, whether it's an overzealous dad um, who says, we're this, this is our family and we are this team and kids buy in and follow the parents. But there's always so many stories of the black sheep in the family where you might have a full gross family, but this young kid makes their parents take them to football every second week because he's a poor supporter. So that's what makes it beautiful. That's what makes it work. And without those rivalries where you don't have you don't have that, that spending support, your club, that emotional support. And uh, I think that is the big trigger on a lot of it is the reason why you associate with a certain team in certain colours and you don't chop and change. I know there are some instances of some people doing that, but let's face it, I was always a sports supporter. My dad played at Port Adelaide. I followed Port Adelaide. My son's now followed Port Adelaide, whether they like footy or not. One's a surf lifesaver, but dad, quicker showdown tickets want to go with my mates only time he's interested every year so it's it's a big thing and you know a lot of people's week is dictated as to how their footy team goes now traders we've been talking a fair bit about the uh, fallout at west coast from their disastrous season and we have been talking a lot about what's going on behind the scenes in terms of uh, who's going to be staying who's going to be going how many are going to get cleaned out all of that sort of stuff now journo caroline wilson's come out uh, with a report, quite interesting, confirmed a few of the things that you've been talking about. But what's the latest in terms of where that club's at and, and how could it all play out, uh, particularly at the end of the season? Well, this has read its head, uh, ugly head again because they got absolutely belted by Carlton and Charlie Kerno kicks 10. But they've got about, Carlton had about 10 senior players missing. So unfortunately for West Coast, they've got to a stage where the senior players have invested all their salary capping on long term deals, either aren't performing or injured or keep getting. Um, and that's the problem. And by doing that, they went all in with Tim Kelly, who's been a pretty good performer for them. They gave up for draft picks, which is going to get them back into the draft. Um, and this is the situation that you know, we've been talking about for a few weeks. The, the strong word is that Trevor Nisbet, the CEO, won't be there next year. He's been there 30 odd years or whatever it is. So that would be a significant change off the field. But off the field's not the issue. It's on the field. It's their recruiting, it's their coaching, it's their uh, performance on the field. It's uh, it's the trading their whole lot has caught themselves in this pickle. And understandably, they won the premiership by kick in 2018 over Collingwood. They went all in to chase more success. They've had nothing but injuries and bad luck since. So I think there'll be more. I think I touched on Ryan O'Brien. He's a long-time footy staff member. The word was he was he was looking to retire last year and he stayed on an extra year. It could be that he he decides to go off. And, that, and that's not true. Any fold on his own is he wants to retire instead of step away from it. But the, the question around Adam Simpson being on the chopping block is legit, but he's still got two years to go on a contract. He's out at end of 25. Now, it's even got to a stage now where they're actually, media starting to criticise him and say he has to pay for the two Hungry Jacks franchises that he's bought to invest his money, which is, just tells you how stupid this is. You know, if you want to invest in a fast food chain and two of them, good on you. He's obviously earning enough money, but Seriously, he's been a wonderful servant for the West Coast Eagles. He signed that contract in good faith. The club signed it in good faith. And if you're going to sack him for less than what he's got, an early payout fee. Um, 
the media, some of the people in the media are delusional. They go, well, Stuart Jews got less and, um, yeah, Brett Ratton got less. Well, that's good less because they're a, a, a supported club by the AFL. West Coast stands on its own two feet. When COVID hit, they had more money in the bank than the rest of the whole competition. So if they're going to sack this coach out, they're saying it's going to cost about $6 million. So that terms of his payout for two more seasons and the rest of this year, then you've got to find a replacement. And then you've got to pay tax on that two-to-one spend in your footy department's bank. Um, yeah, they could pay it all. But th- there's talk around that they're actually going to be worried about um, the PR around this. Well, the PR around this stinks anyway because your team's totally uncompetitive. Um, and you're in a situation where you really need to improve. And, and you need to improve quickly. And he's on at least a million dollars a year. So I don't think there's any quick fix. Senior players going to have to retire. I think Nat knew his contract next year has played hardly. Luke Shuey pinged another hammy on the weekend. He's the captain. He'll probably be close to retirement. Great player. Still up with the game, but he just can't stay out there consistently. Shannon Hearn's going to retire. Um, you've got a heap of guys coming off long-term deals. They need to get into the draft. They need to somehow you know, get some collateral and move some players or worth some value. Um, Tom Barass is one player that's been mentioned, but geez, if he's not, you're not hiding with a little bit more than value, at least a first round pick for him, then you're going to rob your, your team of even more competitiveness next year. So, heaps of going on, ugly as anything, no quick fix. Good luck if you're a West Coast fan. Well, I mean, to be clear, Trent, what do you reckon they should do with the coach? Should he, should he get the flick? Should they, they cop the $6 million cost or should they stick with it? Well, this is the question from inside is the easiest way to answer it. Is he performing, is he coaching really well? Now, at the moment, the PR around it is, it looks like he's not. Um, but understandable, what you've got to embrace for yes, we're terrible. That, that's the other hard thing. He's won a flag. He's got two years on a deal. I think West Coast are hoping for, they make some changes off the field, but put some resources around the club, and then they kick it down the street 12 months. But if I'm a young West Coast player or a West Coast senior player going, well, what am I playing for this club that are actually just trying to tread water for 12 months? You're also got to be in a situation where it looks like Damien Hardwick will end up at uh, the Gold Coast. So you're out of the market for the best coach in the market. Um, Ken Inglis at Port Adelaide, he clearly wants to stay at Port Adelaide or potentially go to the Gold Coast if that would be an option down the track. But Port still hasn't made a decision. Would he be of interest to West Coast? Well, Potentially, would he can develop young players, but they don't have that many good ones to develop because half of them are injured, and they also need to make changes on the list. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's going to look the uglier this gets for the rest of the season. I don't think it's going to fix its problems in the off season, and to have a coach on two years, twelve months, you'd say instantly make him move it on, everyone part ways, pay him out everything he's, he's earned and deserves and move on. But two years is a massive, massive decision to make. And there's reports about whether the president will be around too. So um, I think only those inside the chair can really make that call. It's easy for me to outside to say, okay, we can move the coach, we'll pay him out two years, and we're left behind with a massive hole in terms of six, $7 million, putting in a new coach. Uh, the resources are tight because you've overspent on your cap, your footy department's been cap. You might not have the president there. The CEO's gone, and then a key footy staff member's gone. Well, you've effectively, and then and then you've got a new captain. So you've effectively smashed every pillar that a football club is built on, and that is your president, your CEO, your, your captain, your coach, and your footy manager. There needs to be some sort of restraint, and someone needs to survive. Yeah, 
Now, moving on to rule changes, Trent, is something that you've been bringing up almost every week. Uh, you're, you're really thinking through where to next for the AFL in terms of how they approach these rules. Yeah, Monty, the, the classic one here is I, I called the game on the weekend between Collingwood and Port Adelaide, and it was the be- one of the best games I've called. It's the best game I've called this year watching the game live. It was a brilliant game. Pulley, Port dominated for three quarters. Then Collingwood lifted, kicked six goals to three and pinch it um, at the end of the game uh, in that fourth quarter. But what was a constant was just some icky little rule changes and then also just a little bit of part-time uh, coaching, casual coaching with the North Adelaide Footy Club in the Sample uh, in the State League here in Adelaide. Um, and what I've seen in the Sample the last five years is this last touch rule. So the old days of growing up, deliberate out of bounds. Umpires hardly ever played deliberate out of bounds. Then the A for the last couple of years moved it to scrap deliberate out of bounds and moved to insufficient intent. So anyone who's not making absolute intent to keep the ball with play pinged. Well, there are instances on the weekend, and I've seen it all year, where you go, what, that was insufficient intent? Geez, that was harsh, right? Other times go, well, that was fair and reasonable. Um, and there were situations even with um, young Dacos, Nick Dacos on the weekend, just knocked the ball straight out of bounds. Had no intention. Fair, fair enough, free kick. But what we're seeing in the sample is that they do actually last touch. So if you kick the ball to touch, to distance, and it goes over the boundary line and you're the last one to kick it and or close range, a handball and no one touches it, then it's an instant turnover. It turns the game into a quicker game. The AFL wants a quick spectacle. They don't want extra stoppages, extra throw-ins, extra ball-ups. If they put in this sample last touch rule, which I understand the waffle and the too, you'd have an immediate turnover, the game moves quicker, and not every player is going to be intent on keeping the ball in play. It's harder to defend, so it's higher scoring, so games will be in the balance for longer. Uh, and if you're a team, imagine you're two points up, you're trying to melt the clock, you've been called to play on, you can't kick the ball long down the line and belt the ball out of bounds. Um, yeah, and then it takes away also the ability for four goal umpires, uh, boundary umpires we've got at the moment. We'd only need two. Because the reason why they add those two is that the game moves too quick and you've got to be in a position to adjudicate it. What they're talking about in adjudication in that instance is it add on the full or not. Well, if it's out on the full or it's kicked and no one touches it, it's the same rule as a turnover. And it would rely less on the boundary umpires using it. So I'd love to see it happen. Cuts back your umpires, um, cuts back boundary umpires, takes the pressure off the field umpires. And simply, who touched it last? Well... Did someone's hand touch it? Yep, you can still throw the ball in. Um, if they've done that deliberately, it can be done insufficient intent. But then on the other side of it, if it's just a simple one, kicking a handball out the space with no intent to keep the ball in play, it's an instant free kick and you can't defend it from there. So it'll open up more scoring as well. Yeah, it uh, um, feels like a bit of a no-brainer. It's just a much cleaner approach. I really like it. Now, Treaders, what do you think about the AFL's media policy? What needs to change there? Well, I'd love to see more transparency. Um, and when I say this, we see all these interviews on radio and TV, um, and it's just, it's just widdly dinks. You know what I mean? I don't, how's the best way to describe it? It's a loving. Mm. Um, it's suck-up interviews. You know, certain radio stations will get the CEO on or head of footy. You call them by their nickname and, just talk shop and then you have one journal in the room ask a couple of questions and they hang hanging on that guy for being too serious and everything goes on well i don't remember a time where the afl's put up a ceo unless it's absolute massive car crash pr disaster 
and then they're in damage mode. Um, but why are we hearing consistently? When I say we, the fans, not the media, the fans, right? And the way to hear through all mystery. But if the, if the CEOs put up regularly to chat about the challenges of football, if he puts up regularly about the transparency of what I've actually signed up here for this Tassie deal and what have we done with this, the, the government with the voice, for example, because it looks obvious that they've done a deal with the government on that one for support. All right, well, other issues in uh, the football, general manager of football, you grew up the CEO and go, why haven't we got a, a general manager of football now apart from an acting person? You know, why, why have we got a 12-month you know, rollover when the CEO is going to finally step away from the game? Is it just a ticker tape parade? You know, every Monday, why is uh, Michael Christian, the former Collingwood um, Premiership star, who's the match review officer, not fronting the media and explaining his decision-making on every match review decision? Fans need to know. You know, it's a situation where, unfortunately, we're now in a situation where we go, oh, yeah, this is the this is the, the judgment of how they work out, whether it's intentional or careless or reckless or, or whatever it is. But I think we need to be more transparency from our head office because clubs don't feel like they're being listened to. Fans don't like they think they're being listened to. They won't ever put their name up to clubs because they don't want to be highlighted and ostracised by the AFL. And imagine if we could bring in an NBA-style media policy where you go, who do I want? I've wanted to hear from Dustin Martin since early days, 2016, 2017, right? And I get he's the biggest name. He's been the biggest name in the game since then. He's been the most intriguing person since then. Why? Because we just don't hear him. He doesn't do interviews. Um, we talk about promoting the game. He doesn't promote the game. He's not out there promoting the game much. You know, they'll argue he does his minimum, yeah, but he's a star of the competition getting paid star money. We'd love for him to be involved in promoting the game because if you go to any clinic in any state, in any part of this country, there'll be one kid with a Dustin Martin Richmond jumper on. Why? Because he appeals to the youth. But why are we using that as an advantage to grow the game? So imagine a media policy where any media company can do what they do in the NBA, go into the locker room, hopefully get them to put the top on, Dustin Martin will talk. The only time he doesn't talk is if he's in with the hands of the doctors, uh, which he'd probably hide in the, in the change rooms anyway. Um, and you could actually get the real information out of the real people. Someone's king hit someone on an oval and they've let their team down or cost their game, you should be able to put a microphone in front of them. And that would put some pressure back on the journos to actually act human and don't ask provocative questions. Um, you build some trust in that area. But, you know, why did a certain coach drop a certain tag on the week? You know, we could put that press, you know, that question to Ken Hinckley on that. You know, Drew was doing a great job on young Nick Dacos. They said they went to someone else and Dacos kicked a couple more goals. Get into that question mark. And I know the coaches do that in a post-match presser anyway. But the old post-match pressure's got softer as time's gone on. No one really asked the hard questions. Everyone just wants to get their job done and get their, their story out and move from there. But imagine if you've got an NBA policy where... No matter what happens, whatever's controversy, whatever's happening in and around the game, someone's got an off-field issue, you know, and may have had a speeding fine or been arrested or an off-field issue, you actually put the right people, might not be prone to find the right people, we'll get clarity and the story moves on quicker. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we talk about often how the Australian sport, particularly the AFL, um, looks to the, the NBA and the NFL as a model to to grow their own game. And I think this is part of it. You can't have it both ways. Like as much as the, the NBA and the NFL has 
massive. A big part of that is the access. Big money. Everyone gets paid good money. Um, but as part of that, you, uh, you put your head up and you can't hide away. Everyone talks. Um, the, the, the interviews are more controversial. It's not as controlled as what the AFL likes to have it. And, and I, But I think that's part of it. If you want to grow the game, I think you're exactly right. The policy needs to change and, and the access needs to increase. Now, Treaders, moving on to the Ashes. Uh, I don't know how you felt about retaining the Ashes after a washout in those circumstances. Mate, I was more than happy for it. Couldn't care less. Just wanted to get the result and thoroughly enjoyed the English meltdown in the process. Yeah, it's been a genuine world record sook-up, hasn't it? By the likes of Piers Morgan and all the Pongs. And the reality is the Aussies were good in the first two tests and won the first two tests. And then the end, as you say, the cricket gods, the heavens helped them out. You know, we weren't playing well. It was a bit of a rearguard action between Marsh and Lavashane uh, in that second dig, but we always looked up against it. But we also knew going into this test that the Manchester, t- or the Old Trafford test, um, is is likely to get a lot of rain. You know, it's probably half the reason why the ball hoops sideways. But for the Aussies to retain the Ashes, it was great. Um, I missed, must admit, I did lose a little bit of interest when we're going poorly. So it is pretty season for me. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, yeah, I think it adds. I think if we look back in, in isolation post this uh, Test series. You go from a performance point of view, won the World Test Championship against India, which was brilliant, retained the Ashes, which has been brilliant. But what has been better than that is the rivalry. And we talked about rivalry before, what makes your footy club um, important to you. This is what makes Australian cricket important to Australian cricket fans and English cricket fans. They'll look through their rose-coloured glasses or also on the other side, their ruthless glasses against their own or to their own and find a way why they've loved it, why they haven't. But I think if you look at all the little things that have gone on, from so-called pitch doctoring, which never happens, we've never seen, you know, play the third two, first two tests on a road, um, particularly at Lords, it normally moves around a little bit, to then, oh, was he stumped, was he not, Bairstow with uh, Alex Carey, then also to former English captain calling out Alex Carey for effectively stealing a haircut, which it wasn't in. So you look about all the things that keep giving. The tabloid journalism's got involved in this, and when that has that, uh, that only happens when it's a fever pitched. And uh, I think this is this has been really good. And as we're seeing again now, um, only in the last twenty four hours, the former England captain Michael Vaughan has dropped a rumour, admitted it's unsubstantiated, saying that Dave Warner and Steve Smith could retire at the fifth and final test. Well, who knows? I'm not sure Smith, um, but Warner. He might be out of the team anyway. It might be his farewell now that it's um, effectively a dead rubber and that it has no influence on who retains the ashes. Yeah. And all the rivalry stuff, I mean, let's not forget the commercial reality of rivalries in that when the, the banter and the back and forth and what, whether it's whinging or not, um, you know, it, it brings eyeballs to that next test. We all want to watch. We all want to see how it plays out. So it's great for the broadcast and the ratings. It's great for the the newspapers and the media who are trying to generate clicks. And uh, I think, you know, as long as it, it kind of stays within uh, kind of the sportsmanship and, and how, how the game should be played, I think it, I think it's awesome for, for everyone. But the other thing that's kind of where the, the kind of the on-field bleeds into the off-field is, is the brand, like the brand that the teams have and, and the Aussies, the Aussie test cricket team has had a really strong brand 
that's been defined over many years. You know, you think about, you know, the last 10, 20 years of Aussie cricket, like them or, you know, love them or hate them. The Aussies have kind of are a really clearly defined brand, but now there's, that's going to be called into question on a, on a number of fronts. I mean, you know, the classic Poms in their kind of anger and in their meltdown have said, oh, you know, typical of Aussies and their win-at-all-costs approach to be celebrating this and, you know, doing things the wrong way and the whole Alex Carey thing and all of that. But then actually there's been a bit of pushback from some of the Aussie legends, you know, who are part of defining that, that Aussie brand and culture, you know, like Gwen McGrath and the like, who've criticised the un-Australian tactics under uh, the current captain, Pat Cummins. How do you see the, the Aussie cricket brand at the moment? How is it evolving perhaps under new well, I think it's probably got, like everything in this world, sadly at the moment, it's gone a bit woke. Um, and it, it's, you look at it past Australian cricket captains, and it's happened slowly over the journey. And, and, you know, back when I say the woke, it's back to the old, you know, Michael Clark people talked about the David Beckham of the cricket world. It's the metrosexual, it's the tattoos, it's all that. You go back many generations, it's Ian Chappell, it's Chip Kelly, it's drink beers. Um, bash on the table, call someone out an expletive if they weren't happy with it. Well, it's transitioned, hasn't it? And and I think that's where we sit at the moment. And that's the big challenge on the outside of it is the other challenge and the other talking point at the moment is Pat Cummins and his captaincy. Well, I think he's got off to a pretty good start so far. But um, you look at all our great Australian test captains and not that's not to say a fast bowler can't do the job, but simple your positioning. Um, it's easier for a batsman be a captain um, because all I need to do is you know, obviously bat and perform and then work out the batting order and some of the tactics that go with that. But they're also, their eyes and ears and um, you know, decision-making is probably best done when they're either a slits fielder or a fielder alone. And when you're a bowler, you're going to worry about bowling and a take the wickets, going to work out who's fresh, you know, what tactics, who's going to be my next bowler at what end. And We haven't seen the Australian test captain full time as a bowler for many, many years. Like in my generation, the, the first captain I can remember was Alan Porter. Then it went to Mark Taylor. Then it went to Steve War. Um, from Steve War, Ricky Ponting, Ponting, Michael Clark, Michael Clark, Steve Smith. Um, Steve Smith, Tim Payne, who was a wicketkeeper for the first time. And that was obviously in extraordinary circumstances considering Sandpaper Gate. But pretty much all of those guys were either uh, first, second, third, or fourth slip fielders, gully fielders. Um, so for me, it was a, an interesting take on um, a, a bowling captain and how he's got, and, and that's a lot of a lot of pressure. But as you say, that brand from Australia is, yeah, we we're hanging in and we're having a crack. But I, I just think the way all these organisations have pretty much, you know. They're all pushing government agendas. It's it's changed since many years gone by where you had no sponsors' logos on. You just went out and bowled hard and fast and carried injuries and drank beers at the end of uh, the day's play. You know, it's it's all about pushing certain government agendas now and being politically correct and, and saying the right thing and not offending anyone. Um, so I think, I think the world of sport has changed significantly and there's been a huge overreach into not only... Um, playing your sport, as you say, you know, play your one wood. They're reaching into um, into uh, 
political thinking, uh, ideologies, uh, sexual orientation, inclusiveness. It's, there's a lot of energies being put into other areas other than just playing the sport they are with all of their sponsorships and agreements with governments worldwide. Yep, very interesting times there. Now, we've obviously got the uh, Women's World Cup going on at the moment, which has been pretty incredible to see the turnout of fans live. Now, there's a lot of issues happening behind the scenes, Travis, that I just want to whip through. I mean, one of the interesting ones was, gosh, the, the organisers would have been fuming to find out that uh, Sam Kerr had, had pinged a calf just before the opening game. Couldn't have been worse for the competition. Obviously, just luckless, not much you could do. Um, but the Matildas kept the injury quiet until just before kickoff and actually copped a bit of heat for doing that. I mean, I don't know how you saw that. I, mean, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's kind of part of it, really, isn't it? Well, it's competitive advantage and it's professional sport and it's a big tournament. Why would you let the opposition know that arguably the best striker in the world and captain of the Australian team is injured? How's that going to help your performance? It's not. Yeah, can they get a boast out when they did? People are saying, oh, we owed it to the young people who have paid their money and their tickets. You know what it was? It affected people's betting, betting market. So, you know, once you punt on sport, I couldn't care less, to be fair. Yeah, betting, if you're relying on an injury or whatever to do all this, and, oh, yeah, it's not fair. Well, I've always been a believer that, yeah, I don't think much good comes from um, gambling in sport. And, yeah, not to say I haven't done it. Absolutely, I've done it, and I do it from time to time. But don't whinge to me that, oh, the key player's out and you should have known. No, their job is to perform, their job is to win the game, and their job is not to help the journalists get an exclusive. The journalist who's whinging... Um, it's your job to actually get that exclusive. And if you didn't get it, don't shoot can the people that um, whose job it is to win the game because you're not effective. And I've said on both sides of the fence here, their job is not to help you win the game and your job is not to help them win the game. You know what I mean? You've got to do what's best serves you and the Australian um, soccer team, the Matildas, have done what they think is best for them. Absolutely. No problems with me. Yeah. Now, hopefully that uh, calf injury... Uh, isn't too bad, but it's been a little bit concerning actually to some of the talk around it, seeing some of the pictures. But hopefully, she's back on her feet and out there sooner rather than later. Now, uh, one of the interesting results people don't normally get too excited about a goal or straw, but Jamaica held France. Uh, doesn't sound like much, but pretty incredible for a country. Treaders to get there, they had to do a couple of crowdfunding campaigns. I think there was one that they raised, I think, 50 grand online from fans, and they did another one for about 45 grand. So they had to raise about just under a hundred grand just to be able to get to Australia. Yeah. It's an amazing effort, isn't it? You just take that for granted that, oh yeah, we'll be okay. And yeah, we will have a team in this world cup. You don't expect that they're going to have to raise a hundred thousand dollars themselves to get there. And not only that, they're trying to be professional athletes. They're trying to perform. They're trying to do the right thing, but they shouldn't, yeah, you know, really in the world of sport and the world we sit in at the moment, you shouldn't have to be in a situation for that. If you qualify, FIFA's got enough money to bankroll every team to get there. This is just unbelievable, but great effort by the girls. Now, the other one, I mean, you touched on kind of the influence of politics and agendas in sport. Morocco is the first Arab nation to be playing at the Women's World Cup, which is pretty amazing. But, gosh, a question from a reporter at a presser really ruffled feathers. Uh, someone from the BBC asked the Morocco's captain about her country's ban on same-sex relationships. Uh, pretty pointed question for a standard sports uh, press conference. The question was immediately shut down by a moderator. Uh, and again, the journo pushed back. 
how do you see that? I mean, my, my personal view, I think it's, it's pretty inappropriate. It actually puts players in a very dangerous position given the political climate of where they're coming from. But, I mean, how do you feel about it? Because some may say, hey, it's a press conference. It's, um, you know, you can ask what you want. Yeah, it is. But I think this is where the moral compass slips far too much for me because you go, yep, I think this is an, uh, it's a legitimate question, right? Because if it, you know, if the country has banned same-sex, same-sex relationships, but you know, what's the intricacies of this? This is where you can go. We go, oh, is it actually living in that country? What happens if that athlete lives overseas and has a uh, gay relationship, so to speak, or a same-sex relationship? You know, for me, it's about performance. And is this affecting your performance? No. What, you want a worldwide scale so you can be a hero and blow this up? And this is where the problem lies. It might be with the journal, but it's probably with the journal's news director who's sitting there going, what angle can we take and how can we do this? And this is really important. We think this person's gay and in a, in a same-sex relationship, which is illegal. It's against the thinking of our country. But really, shouldn't we all be supporting the people who, um, who go out to fight for our country on the field? Um, and th- this is the bit that, you know, I know many Australian Matildas are in same-sex relationships and many aren't. What does that matter? Yep, fine. Australia doesn't have rules against that, but Morocco does. Oh, I get that. Oh. But concentrate on what happens on the field. Let's celebrate their performances on the field rather than whether you want to create a, another big click, clickbait headline in the biggest um, event for this sport in the world every four years and that's your question come on be better now i don't know how you're seeing the uh the broadcast coverage i mean a lot of fans are fuming about the streaming arrangements so we've had uh it's all on optus sport they got the full rights cost 25 bucks a month so it isn't cheap which which i don't think is great in terms of accessibility of the games Seven network bought in, but they've only actually got 15 of 64 matches. And I was quite surprised because the promotion hasn't been great. And there's been a couple of times where I wanted to put it on TV and whatever and go, hang on, why aren't their games on? Like, what's the deal? So I don't know. I can, I can kind of agree with fans that it's actually not great, I don't think. Yeah, and I can agree with that. But also I can take myself back to a lesson I was I learned many years ago. Um, it's when I started at the Nine Network as a sports presenter, and Nine had the uh, World Cup cricket rights. I remember when Mike Clark um, had that hamstring injury and got himself up, and we won the World Cup. It was based in Australia and New Zealand. And I'm like, why is Channel Nine showing this game? Well, no, what happens then is that um, uh, Star TV, which is the Indians uh, TV network, um, I think owned by, at that stage, it was by Fox Worldwide. But it stars one of the biggest TV networks in the world. They bought the Australian, the international broadcast license off the cricket's governing body. So they then have to on sell to every country. Australia, with the prices that were being charged, the Nine Network decided we want to buy all the Australian games and Australian games and the finals. For me, when I see this, this is what Channel 7's done. They've gone the Matildas games and key games and the finals. Because as much as you want to be annoyed for the coverage, you're absolutely entitled to be. But it, that bullet should not be fired in the cricket terms at the Nine Network or in, in this case, to the soccer terms at the Seven Network because they've only purchased, as you say, 15 of 64 matches, the highest rating matches that they can actually make some money out of. The sports broadcast rights cost them money. 
the question needs to be asked about the sports. They have the full rights. You're paying 25 a month. The quality needs to be better and they need to be able to be in a situation where it's like the Olympics. And what I saw with the Seven Network at uh, the recent Olympics, you have multi-channels. You can watch whatever you want, whether it's rowing, I don't know, <laughs> pick another sport, athletics, swimming on one station, fencing on another. Um, you could uh, pick and flick at those times. So that falls to the broadcast, that falls to the um, FIFA. Um, it can't fall with the Seven Network because the thing is, the footy fan or the average fan that tunes in to support the Matildas who loves this ball but aren't necessarily a soccer nut and are going to pay 25 a month, goes, oh, it's going to be on Seven, great. So then their, their anger turns to the Seven Network, not knowing full well, even though they've probably been told in every press release that it hasn't been covered, that they're only going to cover a portion of the matches. Yeah, a quarter of the match is less than a quarter. So I can understand how this works from both angles, but this is back to the to FIFA to ensure that it gets covered worldwide. And we talked about those broadcast rights, how they fell short of what they expected. Well, you got to run the event. You know, if it needs to be that it gets broadcast for free and you get a percentage of revenue, do it that way. Because if you have, without the eyeballs, the event doesn't work. And that's why Australia wanted to buy it in the first place. We yeah. want the eyeballs, we want people travelling here and want to see the vision down Manson Street at Highmarsh um, last night, you had two teams that's not Australia playing and there were people everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think you're 100% right. I think people don't necessarily understand the complexities of the broadcast landscape and the fact that Optusport, you know, Optusport came out and, and defended their approach, which, which I also understand that. You pay big money for broadcast rights and you've got to protect it and you've got to make sure that it's uh, commercially viable and at the end of the day you're also going to protect it because you need to keep the value up because everyone wins from the broadcast money so we don't want to dilute yeah, and, and, and lower the value of, of broadcast as well yeah and they're paying the large portion of it and that they sell a portion off at channel seven for a premium to recoup some of the cash so they can do the figures yeah you know, and that's what a lot of the, the situations are all, all the time yeah, I mean, many years ago, the, the English Premier League's coverage in Australia was on Fox Sports, and they did a brilliant job. They did an hour show every Monday. They showed games live, three or four, and three or four, depending on time. Sometimes, yeah, three, sometimes four a night on the Saturday night. Then games on Sundays. Their coverage was brilliant. Then I went to Optus Sport. I didn't go to Optus Sport because I was already paying 100 bucks for Foxtel. Um, and, and I think the game has lost that. and lost me, who's a Premier League nut, simply because um, we're in a situation where... You, People have only got so much money they're going to spend. You, know, you put in the Netflixes and the stands of the worlds. Universal's got one. Prime. You, know, you look at all these situations, and that's understandably why the fans are annoyed too. The numbers are pretty good for seven. I think about 4.88 million people tuned into their coverage of the Matildas opening match. So that was that was good to see. That's a, that's a state of origin rugby night. Mm. That's huge. It's huge. Now, Treaders, the Saudis may have missed out on Messi, but they're throwing everything at another little opportunity that may have fallen in their lap. Yeah, well, this is the guy who is a lot younger than Messi, about 10, 15 years younger than Messi, and he's arguably as good as Messi or will be as good when he retires. And his name is Kylian Mbappe. He's a young French star. He plays at Paris Saint-Germain. He won the World Cup a couple of years ago with France. Um, uh, and this is what's interesting. He's got one year left on his contract with PSG for the season, which is about to sort of pre-season now, getting ready to start. He's owed a loyalty bonus of 90 million euros, which will be paid before Christmas to see out his contract at PSG. The problem is 
PSG have tried numerous times for him to extend his contract. So unlike a lot of sports like AFL, if you run out of contract, you then can go into the free agency market if you're a full free agent. Or if you're a young kid, you've got to go effectively find a trade or go to the preseason draft, which the worst team picks you. In uh, English, well, in worldwide soccer, it was challenged in court many years ago. It's called a Bosman free transfer. So if you sign for four years and you haven't recontracted, you're free as a bird. You can sign with whoever you want. Generally, that means you get more wages because the team doesn't have to pay a transfer fee for it. So PSG, they want, don't want to pay his loyalty bonus. They've offered him a lot more money than and they've said, well, if you don't sign, we want to move him off. But they're convinced that he's already signed a pre-agreement or a come to a terms with Real Madrid for this time next year when he's a free agent. So what's happened, it's been an absolute um, bolt from the blue, is as they're thinking, they don't want to lose this guy for nothing. So they put him on the market. There's five clubs, believe that two or three from England, who want to afford him. Financial flair play is, would smack this out of the park because he costs about $200 million to buy in the first place from Monaco. Huge money for a kid who I think was 19 or 20 at that stage. So there's a situation now where the Saudis have stepped in and they said, we will buy you for $332 million. PSG have gone, done, sold. But with the deal... The player has to agree personal terms. So as much as they want to sell this guy, if the player doesn't want to go, it's got to be two parties agree to this deal because he's still in PSG. So PSG get offered by the Saudis $332 million. And then to turn Mbappe's head, they've offered him $775 million, Monty, for one year. And So it's not like they're going, US hey, we will buy you yeah, for US. Yeah, so it's... It's not like we're going to buy you and lock you into a four-year deal and you have to play in Saudi Arabia, which is not a great league, building up, but it's nowhere near. You know, French league, the English league, the Spanish league. Um, and let's face it, the two best are the, the, the Spanish league, but probably English Premier League for pound for pound for all the competing teams. In Spain, two teams win it pretty much, and then Athletic Madrid every now and then. Um, so what they've said is $775 million US for one year to play in the Saudi league as a stopgap. PSG get their money. Mbappe gets out of there. Um, and we'll let you join Madrid for free the next year. So this is a deal that he seriously has to turn his head and look at because everyone goes, well, this doesn't make sense. But remember, the Saudis bought Live Golf they offered Tiger Woods $800 million US. And as good as Tiger Woods is, he is on his decline in his golfing career. He's not at his best. This kid is at his best. He's, if it wasn't for, um, for Messi, he's probably the best player in the world last year again. Yeah, he hasn't won the Ballon d'Or yet. But yeah, PSG offered 33, sorry, $332 million. And the player, so it's a billion dollar, over a billion dollar US. US exercise to play one season. Yeah. So to, I think the numbers when you convert, so this is the, the club is Al Halal, who's been throwing the kitchen sink at all the big names. World record transfer bid works out to Aussie, half, half a bill. So uh, Aussie, 500 million. And yeah, over $1.1 billion Aussie salary for a year. Like staggering. But what's, what's crazy is. 
and I don't know how, how true these reports are yet, but already there's reports that he, he would rather sit on the bench for Paris Saint-Germain all year than go to Saudi Arabia. Come on, mate. Like, for a year? A billion dollars? Come on, guys. Yeah, what, what this is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, he wants his, his loyalty bonus. He's standing on principle. He's some hot, what's the word? Sometimes seen as a very temperamental figure in his team. You know, when he signed his last deal, he got $180 million to sign on, to sign a four-year deal with an option. So he's got an option for next year, which he doesn't want, a year after, which he doesn't want to take. And that's a player option. But he also, in his current deal, that he's under in the fourth and final year, as I said, with a fifth-year option if he chooses, which is unlikely, he got the choice into who they recruited to at PSG. So in that time, he's agreed to Messi joining the team. Yeah, it, it, this is unbelievable. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out unless Madrid come with a checkbook and go, hey, we'll give you 100 million, we'll take him now. Now, I think there'll be a stopgap because from a performance point of view, I can understand. He wants to play in the best leagues in the world. He doesn't want a stopgap in Saudi Arabia. He's got more money than he ever needs anyway. Um, and commercially, I think going to Saudi Arabia wouldn't help his sponsorships with the likes of Nike at Adidas and whoever he's sponsored by. So, yeah, he's got a bit to think about this boy, but either way, he's going to do okay, whichever way he falls. Yeah. Now, we talked about Messi. Uh, he had a fairy tale start with Inter Miami just in their uh, practice match. Of course, it was in a uh, absolutely packed house uh, over there in Miami. And, of course, it's almost like it was scripted. He's the, the classic Messi free kick scoring in stoppage time. Didn't mind it. Yeah, it was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, and David Beckham was in tears. He's uh, poshed by his wife. Um, Victoria was posting on Instagram, him crying, and everyone jumping and him crying how emotional it was. It brought back uh, memories for me when Beckham came to Australia and played a game. And they said he'd been carrying an injury. They played two games, one in uh, New Zealand, one in Australia, but the Australian game was played first, and... I think Australian All-Star 11 was beating, by memory, the uh, Galaxy team. But then Beckham stepped up and then now one of his world-renowned, like Bessie, free kicks. And it's just like, wow, this is the moment. Perfect. This is what we paid him to come for and, and all that. But uh, it's amazing that Inter Miami has just gone crazy since Messi's joined them. Um, gained 11.7 million social media followers since the announcement. You know, the Golden State Warriors had 31 million. Lakers, 23. And... Cleveland Cavaliers 15.9. They're the only ones ahead of um, into Miami. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They're in a basketball, which is a worldwide, which is NFL's the biggest sport, but probably basketball talks creates a lot of that individual traction that uh, into Miami were after. And yeah, Apple will be licking his lips. Uh, when they signed their 10-year $2.5 billion deal for broadcast rights over a year ago, I don't think anyone knew that Bessie would be heading to the US. So... No, no wonder they partnered with Messi as part of the deal. No wonder Adidas is partnered as part of the deal. They're opening up, yeah, you know, probably an area where soccer has not really taken off. But it's no coincidence that both Messi and uh, Beckham, the two biggest names to join the MLS uh, in the last twenty years, obviously Pele many years ago, were sponsored by Adidas. So money talks, as they say. 
Indeed. Now, another interesting concept that uh, I quite like the look of coming up, we're going to see the first uh, Lions tour since 2013 uh, for, for Union with the Wallabies. There's a bit of an Anzac concept. Can you tell us, Treaders, what's, what's going on there? Well, it's a nine-game tour. Uh, in 2025, including three tests with the Wallabies, combined Australian-New Zealand teams playing in Adelaide. Um, this is it's jumping the Great Divide here. So we're combining Australian-New Zealanders who are, everyone from elsewhere other than the world thinks we're cousins, that we pretty much live on the same continent, but for the first time we'll be playing together against the, um, the Lions tours. So I remember this years ago, the Lions tour played a game, um, I reckon, against... The Wallabies probably go back 10 years, but this concept is going to be really interesting. The South Australian government has obviously forked out some money to play one of the games here to get all the, uh, as we see, I think we're reporting on it on a weekly stage now, that uh, a government has paid money to get a sporting event to get people in for tourism. So I like this concept, um, and I think it needs to combine it and be a special like this type of contest because simply, you know, rugby league, is, is a, it's a big sport. It's lost... It's shine. It's probably its biggest point many years ago. Glenys Club, Glenys uh, Club Cup. Um, when they did that, I still remember when the Australia hosted it in the end of two thousand three, which really Johnny Wilkinson led. Um, British team, English team dominated the World Cup. Australia comes second. So yeah, I think concept needs to take off. I think these ideas of thinking outside the square will create that interest back in rugby union, um, and and I think it'll it'll be a good idea. And I don't know if you uh, followed the British Open closely, but uh, pretty good result for an Aussie there, Treaders. Yeah, well, I, I didn't follow it super close. American Brian Harmon, I was really hoping that um, Cam Smith would dominate because he won a tournament in Live Golf, I think in London, a few weeks before. Um, but Brian Harmon won the British Open by six shots on the Sunday. This is a classic. And as much as we can look at all the other majors, the British Open is the one so out of the box it's not. It's you talk about the conditions, yeah. You know, when the wind blows, you like mate, the ball will come back to you. It's that open and that blustery when they do it. But to finish thirteen under to claim his first major title, four point four six million dollar check, um, which was brilliant. John Rahm tied for second. Um, Austria's Sepp Stracker and Australian Jason Day, which is great because Jason Day um, was one of the best around, wasn't he? Quite literally. Um, had some serious sickness uh, in the family. He won a tournament probably only about two months ago now in America. First time since he was world number one many, many years ago. So he shot a two under in the final round, um, including an unbelievable hole out for birdie on the ninth. Considering you're hitting birdie when no one else can hit the, the greens was just absolutely unbelievable. So his second place finish sees him in $1.6 million. So it's the best finish at a major since he came second in the 2016 PGA Champs, which was great. And best ever finish at an Open. Beautiful. Now, there's obviously been a lot of talk about Daniel Ricciardo. We've been following it, uh, you know, back in the driver's seat. Uh, he looked really good at the Hungarian GP. Yeah, he was qualifying pretty well, wasn't he? But he placed 13th at the end, um, which on paper you go, well, is that that much? It's outside the points. But it was a good comeback for him, a great start and a positive mood. And the fact that he's pushing really hard. And he looks like, if anything, he's a more desperate driver now. And in those latter periods at McLaren where things clearly weren't happy between the parties, then 
it, it looked like the mental barrier was holding him back. But after a period of time, you can't say it's really 12 months. What is it? Seven, eight months since he sort of was cut free and now became a test driver. Then, um, yeah, certainly I think it's great. And, and I'm hoping that he can get a permanent seat as of next year. But guess who won again? Max Verstappen. <laughs> it's a golden era for Red Bull. And even Mercedes can't even keep up. That's 12 wins for the year for him. Benny McLaren's 11 back in 1988. So that's a good stat to have. It's a golden era, that's for sure. Now, there's uh, a bit brewing uh, in the NBA, as always. I mean, there's always something brewing. But the summer league's finished now. So now the all the attention turns to... Uh, some of the big, big trade moves, traders. What's what's on the agenda at the moment? Well, James Harden looking to move on from Philadelphia with the Clippers, his preferred destination. So, and it's funny, the older you get, maybe the polish has now gone away from teams desperate to acquire James Harden. But this is the one that really raises eyebrows. Joel Embiid, right, one of the best centers in the comp. Uh, with the comments that he wants a championship and whatever it takes, even if it's not the 76ers. So if you're 76ers front office, you've got you've just moved on from the Ben Simmons situation. Um, you you got Harden in, hasn't quite worked, and then your best player who want you build your team around goes, mm, I want a championship and I don't really care where it has to be. I want to win one. That would seriously get you concerned. Um, and Damian Lillard, will he get his wish and move from Portland to Miami? Well, who knows? It's all about the silly season kicking off. And as you say, now the summer league is done, then all the focus is going to be on those general managers or basketball GM or head of high performance or whatever they change their names at these different places all the time. Um, this is where they get paid the big bucks. Can they get a roster together to be good enough to win the championship? Beautiful. Well, that concludes our wrap, Treaders. We've covered a lot of territory as always. You can find all the details in our notes, which get delivered via our newsletter at www.thebigdeal.au. So make sure you subscribe there and we'll chat soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Big Deal. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.